This is episode number 167 with Lila Jana of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. What's up, guys? Nathan Chan here, CEO and publisher of Founder Magazine and also the host of the Founder Podcast. And today we have another absolutely incredible guest. Her name's Lila Jana, and she's actually joining us for the second time around. We've been around for a while now. Uh, we're, some people are getting the second round worth of podcast interviews, which is really interesting. Um, because, you know, I look back and I think to myself, wow, well, what, what didn't I ask this person for the second time around? What, what could we tackle further? And, uh, in this episode, Lila really breaks down a common question that I get asked a lot. A lot of people say, oh, you know, Nathan, it's not just about making money, all this capitalism stuff. I want to do social good. And, you know, it's interesting because I don't see what we do at Founder as a form of social good, but after speaking with Lila, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, put it this way. It's interesting because, you know, with everything that we're doing with Founder, we, uh, I, I see it as a, you know, a ripple effect. You know, we impact millions of people on a monthly basis consuming our content and then imagine the impact that that makes on future people. And it's kind of like, you know, we're helping create, you know, help people create the next Google or Elon Musk or you, you know what I mean? Like, so it's, it's kind of cool like that. So it can be seen as social good, but anyways, I digress. A, a, a common question that we get asked is, you know, I don't, I don't want to build a business like that, you know, a, a capitalist based business or a for-profit business. I want to build a non-for-profit or a social enterprise, which uh, seems to be quite common these days. And, uh, Lila, she's an incredible social entrepreneur. She has a ton of extremely successful businesses, Sama Source, Luxme, and uh, now she's actually tried and tested her business models, and she's wrote an incredible book called Give Work, where she really breaks down this social good model, why it works, why all the other models she believes are broken, and uh, she really details this in depth. So you know, the cool part is, 
whatever kind of business that you have, you can implement this model into your business as well. And, you know, I, I think it's really, really important that, you know, we listen and learn from people like Lila because, you know, entrepreneurialism, everything that we do as founders, you know, we're here to make the world a better place. And at the end of the day, we are the ones that are going to drive the world forward. So I hope you enjoy this episode. It's a little different, a little interesting. And, uh, that's it from me, guys. If you are enjoying these episodes, please do take the time to leave us a review. It helps more than you can imagine. Make sure you check out everything else we got going on. Just go to founder.com, F-O-U-N-D-R.com. Yes, we are not foundermag anymore.com. We are founder.com, not foundermag. So we've become, we've moved the domain to a much bigger thing, which is founder.com because we've become much more than a magazine and you can expect courses, more books, more printed magazines, and also maybe, maybe, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, a software product in the near future. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump into the show. The first question I ask everyone uh, that comes on is, how did you get your job? I started Somersource when I was 25, and I had a real passion for Somersource because I had worked in Africa and worked with really low-income people and um, felt like the existing solutions to poverty were not working. The aid model is uh, really crippling low-income people and preventing them from achieving their full potential. And so I thought, you know, what if I could create a different kind of a model? And I was really inspired by the idea of microfinance and the work that had been done there. But the challenge with a lot of those types of models is that they're helping low-income people create small businesses that sell to a client base that is also local, right? So like you get a loan for $100, you sell a few more tomatoes to women who also make less than $2 a day. And so your potential to really be catapulted out of poverty is low. And, uh, and yet, you know, we have global markets for goods and services that are enormous. People spend enormous amounts of money on uh, things like data services, you know, which can be done from anywhere. And uh, even, you know, if you think about like luxury goods and food, I mean, there are, there are international global markets for products that poor people can make. And I think that there are very uh, few companies really tapping into that full potential. And so I, re- I thought to myself, this is the best way to both address poverty um, and create a sustainable enterprise that's not based on aid dollars. I was especially motivated to do this because I'd worked in Ghana as a teacher when I was 17 before starting college. And uh, I'd worked there for six months and lived in a really small um, village where my students were incredibly bright and absolutely capable of doing kind of high quality work, but they just had no job opportunities. There's a huge talent base that is able to read and write the Queen's English, literally. I mean, uh, a lot of schools in Sub-Saharan Africa that were set up during British colonial times uh, have the same educational kind of framework as UK schools do. And so people take O-levels. And and I was shocked at how many bright, educated young people there were in a country like Ghana, especially in rural areas, with nothing to do. So you see these kids graduating from high school speaking, you know, beautiful English, and then 
where are they going to go after that? They end up going back to the same village that they grew up in and, you know, selling, selling stuff by the side of the road. And, and that to me seemed like just such a huge waste of human potential. And that's, that's, that was kind of what led me to start Dinosaurs. Yeah. Wow. And can you give our audience a perspective on, on how, how far you've taken that business and the impact you're making right now? I started it in 2000, September 2008. So we are now nine years old. And the model is we hire people who make less than $2 a day and we train them to do work for large technology companies so that they can move out of poverty. And we can also run the model as a social business that can break even and cover its own costs. And I started out with one contract and now we have employed almost 10,000 people. We have moved 35,000 people out of poverty. So our workers and their families on average, moving their income from $2 a day to over $8 a day, which is a really dramatic improvement. That means clean drinking water, healthcare, access to education, uh, everything that you would expect from a good development program. And the beauty of this model is we're doing this not with money from donations, but with money from the budgets of large corporations for hiring and sourcing. So this is the most direct way to address poverty at the root. And we're doing it in a way that is entirely sustainable and that's tapping an existing you know, large pool of cash that's currently not addressing poverty. And that's what's so exciting about yeah, no, I love it. It's it's truly amazing what you're doing. And I'm curious, this this model, how did you conceptualize it? Like how did you come up with it? It was it before you started Samosource, did it exist? No, not that I was aware of. I I you know, I definitely read about social enterprise before and I had a lot of experience on the ground working for different NGOs but I wasn't aware of a model that existed that was like ours in Africa. And I was really interested in doing this in, in uh, East Africa. And I guess the closest thing, what really inspired me was the outsourcing industry. And I thought, you know, here's an industry where, um, you know, you see people doing call center work for like British Airways from, you know, a city in India or the Philippines. But most of the people who were getting that work were middle-class people. They weren't really coming from slums. They were coming from colleges. They were, they were somewhat educated. The idea that you could get slum workers to do this was so exciting to me. And, uh, and that's really what, what inspired them here. Mm, I see. And when it comes to your new book, Give Work, can you tell me um, the basic premise on, on why, why, why you wrote this book? So I've been working in this field for nine years. We, we finally became profitable last year. And we employ, uh, we currently have over 1,200 agents, 1,200 workers in Kenya, Uganda, India, and Haiti. So the business had come to a point where it was mature enough to really show that, yes, the model works. We've actually, um, we just completed an impact audit by a third party. So it's sort of like a financial audit, except they look at your impact numbers instead of your finances. But it's sort of a third party proof point for whether you are measuring up to what you say you're doing in terms of impact. And so we had this third party audit and we, we passed it with flying colors and, and basically we proved out that we increased people, people's incomes by 400%. And I thought, okay, now is the time, now that I know this model works, the business is going well enough that I can 
take my mind off of it for a few minutes and, and work on a book. And the world needs to know this story because right now we are spending billions of dollars on aid. We're putting that money into programs that are generally run by governments that don't often have the impact that we want to see uh, in the communities we're targeting. So we spend billions of dollars, that money doesn't have the intended effect on poor people. And even if it reaches poor people, let's say we end up building them a well or building them a school. Um, if you go and look at the long-term impact of that, it's so much less effective than creating a job in that community. People in poor parts of Africa and Asia and Latin America, people in the developing world, they don't want us to build their schools for them. They don't want our charity. They want a job so that they can have enough money to build their own schools and infrastructure according to what they feel is important. And that's the message of the book, that the most powerful way to address poverty at the root is to give work rather than aid. This is not aid that should end aid programs. To the contrary, I think we actually need more money in this category, but the money needs to be directed into where it's most effective. And there are two places where that money can go. It can fund social enterprises like Somasource, and there are enterprises like mine in so many categories. There are everything from, you know, coffee chains to restaurants to now there's a growing uh, data services kind of sector. So like people doing computer-based work, there are so many different kinds of social enterprises that have a mission of hiring people from a poor background or a marginalized background, maybe people who have disabilities that make it difficult to work or people who uh, who come from an ethnic minority that's often excluded from the workforce. These types of organizations give work. And what if we redirected aid money to fund them? What if we created incentives for companies that could prove that they were hiring people from these sorts of backgrounds that normally get excluded? So it's almost like a new layer for hiring. We think often of, about gender diversity, when you're hiring in a company or ethnic diversity, but rarely do we think about economic diversity. Rarely do we think about deliberately hiring someone from a very low income background. And yet if we do that, we address poverty and inequality at the root. And, uh, and to me, there should be government incentives for that. That's where our aid dollars should go. If Microsoft wants to go and hire thousands of people who are living in pretty extreme poverty from a slum and pay to train them, I think we should pay Microsoft the equivalent of aid money to do that and to pay living wages to those people directly. And, uh, and that's the premise of the book <laughs> mm. in a nutshell. Yeah, no, it's, um, no, it's amazing. I, I really, it's really, really interesting. So for example, um, we, we do hire staff, uh, our company in the Philippines. So is that, is that like, um, I guess my question is like, what is your what is your thoughts on companies like like freelancer or uh, yeah? What what are your thoughts on companies like that? These outsourcing platforms. Yeah, they're great, but I, I think look, you know, it's definitely great to hire people in the Philippines or India, but I think it's a, there's a very different level of of challenge in hiring someone who comes from a genuinely poor background, i.e. under the local poverty line, which in a place like the Philippines would be under $2 a day. And generally speaking, the people that get, that do this freelance work are not coming from those backgrounds. They're coming from middle-class backgrounds. They're not living in abject poverty. And our mission is to try to 
make it possible for people who would otherwise be excluded, those people who are not finding work on Upwork or who are finding work with companies like yours to access this work for the first time. Now, a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, then we should fund just training programs. But the problem with a lot of training programs is that they're not market aligned. So lots of poor people pay billions of dollars every year to try to get training, some kind of vocational training that will lead to a job. And very often that vocational training is completely disconnected from what the employer needs because the organizations that provide the training are not the ones that are giving the work, right? They're third parties. And in my view, I think the best solution to that is to incentivize the companies themselves to do the training. And in the case of Upwork, we've actually partnered with them um, where we have a program that allows people to go through our training program at Sama School and then sort of graduate into an agency that we help manage on Upwork. And we provide, I think the other thing that's often challenging for people from these sorts of backgrounds is if you've never grown up with any computing device at home and you have little familiarity with what that looks like, if no one in your family has ever had a job in an office before, you're not going to be able to graduate from a simple basic program that teaches you how to do tasks on the internet and immediately know how to market yourself and win business on Upwork, right? And so the role that Samaforce plays and the role that a social enterprise can play is to market the services of these folks and to do quality assurance and provide other guarantees to the employer that this work is going to get done at a good quality level. And that's effectively why, why Samaforce exists. In the early days, we actually tried to build our whole platform on the back of, of ODESC and Elance. And we realized that it just wasn't going to work because our workers required, you know, extra levels of quality assurance and training that could not be provided to those, those platforms. But I do think in general, they provide a much more meritocratic launch pad for many people who come from the poorest parts of the world. Mm. So talk to me around what drives you. Like, I, I find it very, very fascinating. Um, that you've got quite a, you know, you, you also have Luxme, um, which is which is another. Would you would you say that's an extension or or like a, is Luxme totally separate from Sama Source? Yes, Luxme shares the same mission of giving work to end poverty, um, but a separate company. And I donated a third of my shares in Luxme to the nonprofit Sama Source. Mm, gotcha. So. Talk to me, like, what drives you? What, uh, what, what makes you get up out of the bed in the morning? Uh, and, and what inspired, like, you just this this thirst that to to want to make a difference in the world? Um, I think if you've lived in a community where people are living in poverty, it is something that you cannot ever forget. And the fact that billions of people are living on less than a few dollars a day, and thus experiencing really dramatic and also avoidable suffering is something that I, I can't, I can't let go of. And if I were not working in this field, I don't think I would be able to sleep at night because it's too much of a pressing concern having seen it in person. I mean, I, I've seen children dying of entirely preventable causes. Most of the children in my school where I taught English in Ghana were blind um, because their parents couldn't afford a very basic medical intervention when the child was young. Many of the students had eyes clouded from cataracts, which could have been fixed with a simple surgery. And 
To me, that represents the biggest waste on the planet. The biggest untapped human resource is the brain power at the bottom of the pyramid. And instead of building AI algorithms, you know, and building software, what if we could find out a way to unlock that human potential that's currently completely destroyed uh, by poverty? And and to me, that's the most exciting and compelling thing I could imagine working on day to day, despite the challenges, and there are so many. And in the case of Luxme, you know, we're, we're fighting the same the same battle, um, just in a different industry, which is to figure out how to create this impact sourcing model for women who are even less skilled than the workers at Salmasource, who don't have a high school diploma, who don't read and write English, who are often illiterate, who are the women who are uh, picking the raw ingredients in our supply chain. And, uh, and I think there's an opportunity for impact sourcing there too. Yeah, wow. So across the two companies, uh, how do you spend and spread your time? Um, I, right now, am CEO of both companies, so I divide my time between the two. And um, it's tough, but it's work. <laughs> mm. And do you do kind of a Jack Dorsey where you have certain days for certain companies, or, or how do you manage both? Can you give us some insight around that? Yeah, I mean, I wish I could do what Jack Dorsey did, but uh, my companies probably have far fewer resources than than his, and so... I don't yet have the size of the team that allowed me to devote just a few days a week to each company. It's a little bit more blended. For me, you know, the good news is that Salmasource is profitable and growing quite quickly, and we have a very talented executive team. And so my role at Salmasource has shifted really dramatically. Um, it's not an early stage startup anymore. It's a much later stage, you know, startup where we have, you know, a real viable business that is you know, going to keep growing and very large corporate customers that have been with us for, in some cases, you know, five years. And so I think my role there is much more to guide the strategic direction of the company and to think much more big picture about where we're headed, which is kind of what I do anyway, you know, on weekends and at night. So, um, so I, the, the nature of the role change with, with Luxme is a little more tactical day to day. How do we, you know, how do we, raise the next round? How do we grow our sales at, you know, support the, um, and how do we build this consumer brand? Mm. And when it comes to strategy, do you, do you dedicate time to think about it? Uh, I do. Um, I actually set up time with my team to discuss strategy. And what I've tried to do is like, I used to do a lot of team meetings that, you know, covered off key kind of organizational updates. And now we use Slack for anything that's update related so that if I'm having a meeting with my management team for Sama, for example, I really want us to be focused on big strategic questions, not the, you know, not the day-to-day kind of operational things that I used to spend a lot more time doing. And I think that now that I've hired people around me who, who manage much of the day-to-day operations and make sure things are running smoothly, it's given me the freedom to really think more deeply about strategy. And for me, it's, it's a very different process than the day-to-day management of a company. You need to be in a completely different headspace. Like I need to be in sort of like a meditative headspace. Often I find for me, I get the best ideas about where I want to take the organization when I'm out in nature, you know, on a deep hike or in Africa, you know, in the jungle, I mean, somewhere kind of remote where I'm not distracted by, you know, did I get, you know, the last like blurb for our book in on time or did I, you know, there's so many day-to-day concerns that come up. And I really think the hardest, 
the hardest part of a CEO or corporate leader's job, company leader's job, is to carve out time away from the day-to-day to really think about what's going to happen five years from now. And where do you see the business going five years from now to really have that vision? And that is what is often unique to the founder or the leader of an organization. And that's the most precious use of the founder's time. And I'm really lucky that now at Sama, we have a team that really understands that. And so they almost kind of protect me from issues that come up day to day. And and then I think about these things and come back and present different options that the team can then discuss together. But really, I think that's you know, holding the vision and defining the strategy at the highest level is is the, probably the most important job for a founder to do once you have, you know, achieved a level of operational wherewithal. And with Luxme, we're still not there yet. We're still kind of building the business and there's a lot of fires to be put out all the time. And I'm, I'm writing copy for the ads that run on Facebook and I'm shooting some of the photos that are on Instagram. And like, I'm very much involved in much more of the day-to-day because I have to be because we don't yet have the luxury of, of having me think about um, the strategic direction. But I think it's often a, you know, phase question for a company. Mm. And which phase do you prefer? Like the being on the kind of building it from scratch phase, <laughs> uh, the hustle kind of, or, or versus kind of having a, having an amazing executive team. I love the details in certain areas i mean i love i and i still obsess over details don't get me wrong like i definitely weighed in on like the card stock we're going to use for the invitations for our annual dinner um or you know a line that we're going to tweet out on on twitter i will get involved with that level of detail if necessary but you really have to kind of pick and choose and i think as a founder or as a ceo you know you're often the, the hard thing is that you're often gravitating to what's broken, what's not working in the company, and then you tend to micromanage that. I personally hate, I hate getting into the minutia, and I only do it if something's broken and not working, and therefore I have to kind of dive in and understand what's not working so that we can fix it. Um, but for the most part, you know, when the team is hitting the numbers, when our business is growing, when I'm getting, you know, good metrics back, and if you have a good, um, you know, a good set of performance indicators, then it's really clear, really easy to understand whether the business is working or not. And once you have those indicators and see that the business is working, then you can, you know, I think zoom out and focus on the bigger picture. However, there's always like an eye to the, the detail whenever, you know, in the area that may not, maybe is not working. For example, at Samasource, we don't have a CMO. We've not had a CMO in our history. So a lot of the marketing work kind of defaults to me. And that means that I'm much more of a micromanager when it comes to marketing stuff with Somersource and with, say, finance, where we have a very talented leader, or delivery, where we have a talented leader, you know, or, you know, sales. And so, so you kind of gravitate to where there's a hole that needs plugging. And, and the challenge is how do you avoid getting sucked into that? Because you obviously don't want to spend all your time thinking about the minutia in one area and ignoring the bigger picture, like the next big sales deal you might be able to sign if you could only make the connection for your team. Mm, yeah, no, I like that. And when it comes actually to these big sales deals, what advice do you have like working with these big corporations getting that cut through because you've done an incredible job there, especially with Sama. I think what differentiates a successful company from an unsuccessful one is pretty much um, an ability to keep going even when 
the sky feels like it's crashing down around you and everyone rejects you and most people would quit. I mean, it's really not extreme talent, I think, that defines the best companies. It's basically an incredible sense of resilience and grit. And, uh, you know, some companies, I think, bring something so unique to the table that, like Google's, you know, search algorithm, that, okay, that's, that's probably a different category. But I think in most businesses, I really think there are very few new things that, that are invented. I think everything's kind of a regurgitation of what happened in the past. And therefore, often the job of a founder is to kind of keep pushing and keep going even when it seems like the business isn't going to work. And it's not really brilliance that makes the company successful, but rather just that intuitiveness. And so when it comes to sales, I had so many examples like that where I was flat out rejected many times, but managed to still build a relationship without, you know, without asking for anything. And, and often, I mean, sales, like any part of a business, is just human relationships. So my first biggest customers were me really putting in tons of sweat equity to try to meet them, understand what they were looking for, understand what their objections might be, you know, figure out any way possible to, um, to get the customer interested in working with us. And then one of our biggest successes was a free trial program that we launched where we said, look, if you, you know, if you're nervous that these workers are not going to be able to get the job done, why don't you try it out? You know, and you'll never know unless you try it out and we'll do that for free. And that really helped. Mm. Yeah, no, you've done an incredible job there because it must have been so difficult to get that cut through, especially in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, totally. So did you ever feel like giving up? Uh, many times. I mean, I, um, I really struggled for a long time because I had no money and the business was really tough at the beginning. I mean, I was paying myself $400 a month when we first started with Sonosaurus, and then I slowly grew a salary, but I mean, it was not a salary to live on in San Francisco, and it took many years before I had enough of a budget to even have a decent, you know, to be able to afford the basics for myself. And there were moments when I had a lot of friends, I went to Harvard undergrad, and a lot of my friends went to go work at Facebook because they knew founders and they were part of the same crew, and a lot of my friends kind of said, why don't you come and work with us? And I really thought about it. And I, I mean, had I done that, I would have, you know, paid millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> and I, I mean, assuming I could have gotten a job there, but, but I, a lot of my friends were kind of early stage tech employees across Silicon Valley and I chose a different path. And so, you know, that obviously causes you to wonder, was that the right path? And should I have done what I did? And I really feel like despite all of the hardships and the challenges, I really believe in what we do. I mean, I believe it almost the way that someone believes the religion. It's, it's, to me, it's like a mission and a calling much more than a job. And really a, a privilege and a pleasure to get to work on that mission every day with other people who care so deeply and profoundly about making the world better, you know. And the thing that's helped me not quit is the people that we hire at Sama. I just, we had a, um, a little farewell party for... Um, one of our junior employees who has been with us for two years and it was his first job out of college and like the level of just moral awareness that this young man has for a 23 year old you know young worker is just I mean it defies every stereotype about millennials you know that that millennials are cynical and lazy and you know selfish I mean we have people who are literally the polar opposite of that people who are like complete exemplars in every area of their life. And for me, like the privilege to work with 
with people like that who are also really smart and funny. I mean, that is worth a lot of money. Mm, yeah, no, that's um really amazing. So um, we have to work towards wrapping up, but a uh, question around, I guess, talent. What do you look for? What are your rules? I look for people who, I guess a few things. So in both companies, I look for people who are entrepreneurial. So especially in an early stage company, I think it's less so now with Salmasource because we have systems and processes in place. We have the infrastructure of a real company, which we didn't have at the beginning. With Luxme, we're still at the stage where we're building all of that. You know, we don't have a lot of processes. Everything's kind of, we're doing things by the seat of our pants. Like things are new each time we do them. And so in that kind of an environment, it's not just the founder who has to be an entrepreneur. It's everyone in the company. And our marketing person is daily trying to figure out new strategies for getting our brand in front of people in an environment that's rapidly changing. Everything's shifting from print to digital media and, and everything's shifting with consumer, consumer brands away from the very traditional awareness building mechanisms towards things like you know, Instagram influencers. And so if she's not entrepreneurial, we're not going to succeed. And our designer is forced to come up with how to make beautiful images on a budget that is like far below what any other brand has. And that requires entrepreneurship. And so, you know, everyone has to be a hustler in an early stage company. And that's the number one thing that I look for. Is someone going to sweat the small stuff the way I do? Are they willing to put in the extra hours to make something right on a lower budget because we don't have, you know, the money to hire someone else to do something? Are they personally invested in the outcome the way that an owner or a founder is? And, um, and if you have those qualities, I think you can often learn skills you may not have come into the job with. And it does make up for, for a lot of other things that, that you might miss. Therefore, like formal qualifications often don't matter that much to me, whether someone has a fancy degree or went to a really fancy school. It's more about, is that person going to stay up at night <laughs> you know, worrying about their part of the business as much as I worry about the whole business. Yeah, no, I love that. And a couple of last questions. When it comes to look, looking for people like that, aren't you worried that they might leave though? Oh, definitely. You know, we've had people leave and go start their own companies. We've had people leave and join other startups. But I think um, great people who are highly entrepreneurial in a company that's growing and providing challenges associated with that growth will stay. And, uh, I think when something becomes a mission and a calling and when you can see the results of your personal effort and when you get credit for those results, that's what makes something an exciting job and an exciting to work. You know, I think we're really lucky to have the kind of people that, uh, that are hard to walk away from. And that's as much about the mission of the organization and the values um, as just the, the people that you interact with daily who, who inspire you. And, and I think, again, that sense of accomplishment where you feel like you're really, you can see the results of your job materially. Yeah, you're doing your best work. Yeah, you're doing your best work, and it's for, like, the most noble cause, and uh, and you're doing it with fun, smart people who share your values. I mean, I really think there are fewer things, I mean, there are very few things that make you happier than that in life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. Um, okay, two last questions. One what would you like to uh, share uh, finishing off this this conversation just around uh, the premise of your new book around 
giving work? And uh, two, uh, where's the best place people can find out more about yourself and your work and to grab a copy of the book? Sorry, where can they, where the best places? So um, lilajana.com is my website, and that's probably the best place to sign up for email updates and follow the work. I also um, post updates on the book on that page and on my newsletter list, and they can also follow along on Facebook or on LinkedIn or Twitter. I share quite a lot on those channels. Awesome. All right, well, we'll wrap there, but thank you so much for your time, Lila. It's really, really amazing conversation. I really enjoyed it. Pleasure. I enjoyed it as well. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e commerce and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.